Hello and welcome to the Super 70 Podcast. Episode 1, Blade Runner. Super 70 is a podcast meant to sync and play along with the film we discuss. You don't have to, though, and can go on listening without watching anything. I would, however, recommend you watch the film we discuss before listening to the Super 70 Podcast. You can download this podcast from iTunes or my website at www.thatdylandavis.com. I'm Dylan Davis. I'm going to try to do this as extemporaneously as possible, but I have a lot of notes, so hang in there. I will be using the final cut of Blade Runner, found on the special edition four-pack DVD issued in 2007, and its re-release on Blu-ray for the 30th anniversary in 2012. If you press play on either DVD or Blu-ray, now, this commentary should sync with the rest of the film. I chose Blade Runner as the first film to review in this podcast, not just because it is one of my favorite movies, but because it meets several criteria as to why film is art. First, Blade Runner is a science fiction film, and this genre, probably more than any other, is often used as a vessel to discuss modern issues. And as a whole, film is a tool to record the hopes and fears of a society and time. Blade Runner shows us not the hopes and fears of 2019, when it is set, but 1982, when it was released. Second, I wish to combat the popular notion among some intellectuals and so-called intelligentsia that the 1980s was a decade bereft of morality and infected with a decadent pop culture that only served a super-masculine, ultra-right-wing ruling class, notably and supposedly led by President Ronald Reagan. And this version of the controversial voiceover of Blade Runner is removed. The theatrical version in 1982 featured Harrison Ford's voice describing his thoughts on the case as it unfolded. Very common in film noir, and the primary reason why film professors prefer the original film. Ford's voice acting, however, was much derided by the film's fans, and removed for both the director's cut released in 1993, and the final cut that we are watching now, approved by Ridley Scott. Scott did not want the voiceover, and subsequent resources conclude that Ford sided with him and attempted to record a bad VO so that Warner Brothers would not use it. The scrolling text informing you what a Blade Runner is is a rarity in a Ridley Scott film. The studio insisted and Scott relented. Effectively, Scott had to do whatever the studio asked him to do after they fired him, believe it or not. He was obligated to finish the picture the way they wanted to after it ran a certain percentage over budget. The opening shot that you're about to see of a dystopian Los Angeles is one of the most memorable opening shots in cinema history. It was designed to contrast to Scott's 1979 blockbuster Alien, also a science fiction film, and was meant to overpower you much like 1977 Star Wars, directed by George Lucas, and 1968's 2001 A Space Odyssey by Stanley Kubrick. And we'll see that Scott has 
deftly created something both Kubrickian and from George Lucas's world. Here we go. The plumes. The opening shot is so effective that Arthur Philip K. Dick, who, who penned the story Blade Runner is based on, he withdrew his opposition to the film after he saw it. And apparently it was just a special effects reel. Dick was a cult author at the time, but became hugely influential after his death in February of 1982, five months before Blade Runner was released. Many of his books have been made into films such as uh, Total Recall, Screamers, Minority Report, Paycheck, A Scanner Darkly, and The Adjustment Bureau, most recently. So remember the eye here, the all-seeing eye. What is Scott telling you? Look closer. This is a film with many layers. Blade Runner is not about one thing. It's about lots of different things going on at the same time. It's rather crowded, and that probably detracts from the film. So Phil K. Dick's short story Blade Runner is based on Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. It's written in 1968 and adapted for the screen by Hampton, Fancher, and David Peoples. And the opening shot conveys a dichotomy of progressive technological innovation and regressive energy. Oil, for instance, which has polluted the earth. And the opening scene sends us right into a film noir detective story. We have an office environment. We have chiaroscuro lighting. We have effectively an interrogation. A Blade Runner by the name of Holden interviews an employee of the Tyrell Corporation named Leon. You notice the Tyrell Corporation's building looks like a, like a temple, like a ziggurat. We'll get into that later. Leon, played here brilliantly by Brian James, is a new employee, and Holden is giving him a psychological and physiological test called Voigt Kampf that is designed to find androids masquerading as humans. This uh, machine supposedly examines whether your eyes glow and the tests filter the air for synthetic pheromones and things of that nature. This was not particularly clear in the initial screening. So the chiaroscuro lighting, the fan representing the circle of life and the smoke obscuring much of the scene, and, and that's throughout this film. These are classic tools used in so-called film noir movies. So when film noir elements are used in science fiction films, it is commonly called neo-noir. Most of the time it doesn't work. In Blade Runner's case, it does. Film noir, these movies roughly running from 1939 to 1959. The first one is generally thought of to be The Maltese Falcon by John Huston, and the last one is typically regarded as A Touch of Evil by Orson Welles. Both of those are considered classics, and during the, the height of film noir, which is actually after the war, during the war and after the war, the Second World War, the French, who had no access to American film, all of a sudden did after the war. And they started seeing these really, really dark films coming out of Hollywood that they weren't quite prepared for. And a lot of that was due to Hollywood trying to adjust its environment to continue shooting. So they cut lighting. The crime here is Leon's murder of Holden, exposing him as an android. 
manufactured by the Tyrell Corporation. Leon is a, a Nexus 6 model, which we will find out later is a model designed to look, quote, more human than human, unquote, which is the Tyrell Corporation's sales motto. We'll get in on this later. Leon's anger is at a question about his mother. It's a Freudian device in psychoanalysis to elicit an emotional response. And Leon's response is to kill Holden, who has committed the faux pas of asking a replicant about his mother, of which he obviously doesn't have. In a way, however, this proves Tyrell Corporation's motto, more human than human. Leon is upset about the questioning of his mother, much like a human being would be, regardless of the fact that he doesn't have one. So though Blade Runner is without a doubt a Ridley Scott film, it does have many fathers, and we've already mentioned Philip K. Dick, screenwriters Hampton Fancher, David Peoples, and in terms of production, the popular comic book Heavy Metal by Mobius is responsible for Luc Besson's 1999 film The Fifth Element, and comparisons of that film to Blade Runner even Mila Jovovich's genetically perfected Lilu is reminiscent of Daryl Hannah's Leonatard wearing fight scenes. Heavy metal was a huge influence on sci-fi. You can see that all throughout this opening shot of what was called Ridleyville, these sets here. Ridley Scott was a fan of heavy metal. And you can see this in Alien. You can see this in Prometheus. You can see this here. So we cut to former Blade Runner Rick Deckard waiting for his lunch in a Chinese market under constant rain of pollution. He's looking for a job because he does not like retiring replicants. This is the euphemism for killing them. This is almost like, uh, just stay with me here, folks. This is going to an extreme. It's almost like the final solution uh, was was a euphemism or special action. The word special action was a euphemism by the Einsatzgruppen during the war to exterminate Jews. So if you don't know, if you don't like what you're doing, um, you don't call it that. If you don't like murder, you don't use the word murder. You use the word retire. They're not really people. They're subhuman. Untermenschen. Deckard is sitting in front of a Chinese character that means creation in this opening shot. Interesting. In this version, whoop. so the set you see here uh, is is Ridleyville that I discussed before. This is the set, believe it or not, that Annie was shot on, and this set was used multiple times in the film. Uh, the managers of the Warner lot tried to salvage the radical changes to the set, but in the end it was all torn down because it was deemed unusable. Too bad. In this scene, we learn that Deckard's old boss, Bryant, who's going to be played here by the distinguished character actor M. Emmett Walsh, has sent another Blade Runner named Gaff to fetch Deckard out of retirement in order to find Holden's killer, Leon. Look at this amazing shot here. Blade Runner is outstanding special effects in the age before CGI. And the final cut wipes clean a lot of these computer tracking motion shots that were used. 
It was one of the first movies to use computer tracking motion shots. Star Wars didn't have those. They literally put the camera on the back of a truck and drove by the set, shooting live. This office environment is similar to other noir elements. Not just at the Tyrell Corporation, but at Deckard and Sebastian's apartment, too. And before we go any further into plot, I want to bring up another pivotal personality. Another father of the film, Douglas Trumbull, who created the special effects for 2001 and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. He also directed Brainstorm, a production that was fraught with problems. Uh, Natalie Wood died during principal photography. Trumbull left Hollywood to develop ride film theaters for amusement parks, and these were curved 180-degree screens like the one I used to go to as a kid at Astroworld in Houston. You were sometimes connected to a passenger cradle to simulate kinetic motion in the audience, and Trumbull now works for IMAX and continues to innovate in the art of special effects. And you can see in, in the shots in Blade Runner, in the 90 separate shots that are in this film, that cost over $3.5 million. That's a $1.5 million overage from the original budget, which is one of the reasons why Scott and Peoples and others were fired. So Trumbull used computer-controlled cameras to pan or glide through eight-foot-deep models. Uh, these were miniatures that were elaborate to the smallest detail. Matte paintings were used in conjunction with these, and then the addition of spinners flying through the set to give the shots unreal authenticity. And it still works 35 years later. So while you see these shots that are, that are going to come up again, try to appreciate them. They're reminiscent of Metropolis or Things to Come from Fritz Lang and, and H.G. Wells, who wrote Things to Come, script for Things to Come. So going back quickly to the voiceover, which oddly continues while Deckard sometimes is speaking to Bryant, if, you're, if you'd seen the original version. The VO is one element of the film. The odd cuts of Deckard listening but not watching Holden's death is another. That establishes a, a hectic pattern in the film. It unsettles the viewer. So this, along with the production design and the very odd costume design, Blade Runner does not look like a 1980s future uh, to me and to a lot of people. It puts the film off balance as if everything was planned, instead thrown together in a tight time frame. So it looks like everything was going forward in pre-production, and then somehow everything fell apart. And this may work for the film in that it, that it does upset audiences' expectations for sci-fi, but it contradicts Alien, Legend, Gladiator, Black Hawk Down, other Scott films that show... Ridley's famous Kubrickian attention to detail. So, Scott had shot around 300 commercials before Alien, and he knew how to master a Maison scene um, such as this here. The discussion with Bryant. In a lot of ways, this is like David Fincher. If you look at Fincher emerging out of shooting uh, million-dollar music videos for Madonna and Michael Jackson and so forth... Fincher had gotten so good at it 
that he could assign a cost per minute of anything that he would shoot in the future, and Scott was able to do the same. So this jumbled up Maison saying this this sort of chaotic production, the chaotic clothing and costumes. This does not mean the production was was influenced by offstage events, but it seems to have been. So prior to Blade Runner, Scott was working hard on pre-production on Frank Herbert's Dune. He was adapting that famous novel into a screenplay. Dune had been attempted before by Alejandro Jodorowsky, a South American director. It was a decade before, but pre-production lost financial support, and many of the staff worked on Star Wars immediately after. Famous Italian producer Dino De Laurentiis acquired the rights to Dune, and after he saw Alien courted Scott for Dune. It seemed like a good partnership at the time. Laurentiis had just finished another famous sci-fi, uh, Flash Gordon, which did a moderate amount of money. And Flash Gordon, of course, went through a phase where people just laughed at it for 20 years, but now it's starting to find an audience again when we have superheroes coming back into fashion. Artist H.R. Geiger, a Swiss surrealist painter and sculptor, he worked on both Dune with Jodorowsky and Scott on Alien. Scott retained Geiger for Dune, but after seven months he was struck by a personal tragedy when his brother Frank died of cancer, and this was catastrophic to Ridley and his family. Scott saw that Dune needed at least two years of pre-production and a six-month shooting schedule to complete a two-part film equaling over five hours. Just think about that for a minute. Scott decided that he wanted to shoot something immediately and to keep his mind off his brother's death. He declined Dune, and he moved on to Blade Runner. Dune was picked up by David Lynch, who declined Return of the Jedi after George Lucas' war with the director's guild meant that Steven Spielberg was unavailable. So Lucas wanted Spielberg. He couldn't do it. Asked Lynch. He turned it down. And then... It went to the third guy, Richard Marquand, who was not in the Director's Guild. Such is Hollywood history, a Jedi by Spielberg, a Dune by Scott, all we need is a Blade Runner by David Lynch, and maybe all three films would be remarkably better. 1982 is a hell of a year. A remarkable alternate reality. Scott picked up and ran with Blade Runner in crunch time. So there was pre-production on the film, and then Scott got involved, and it was almost like chaos hit. And even though his shots are characteristically long, they do not suggest a, a chaotic production. The fact is pre-production was rushed, the financing was precarious, and the shooting of the film was marred by consistently challenging incidents. The Lad Company itself was thrown together, and a lot of financing was could not be found in California. They had to go to China, where Sir Run Run Shaw put in more than his two cents. The four-month shoot started in March 1981, putting Harrison Ford in the rain at night for 50 consecutive nights. There were daily problems in production. The pillars in Tyrell's dining room, here for example, they were upside down the day when Scott inspected them for shooting, but which was supposed to be hours later. That was one of several production mishaps. Scott and Ford clashed so bad, it took decades for either to acknowledge the other. 
Harrison Ford wore a t-shirt that a paparazzi took of him several years ago that said, yes, I'm Han Solo, Indiana Jones, and Blade Runner, and I'm fucking over it. In an interview in which Scott criticized American production crews for their argumentative behavior in England, um, Scott did not endear his American workers. And the interview was published during production on Blade Runner. It started this silent war between Scott and the crew. And a lot of people call this the T-shirt war. Scott famously said that when he asked a British crew to do something, it was yes, governor, and it was done. Yes, governor being a colloquialism in England. The Americans uh, read further into this, in which Scott complained about you asking an American crew to do something, and it's, oh, well, you know, there's a negotiation going on, and I'm not sure. And Scott was very upset at this. Glowing eyes here from Rachel. Remember the glowing eyes. It's It's indicative of a replicant. And he notices it. So the crew put this yes, governor, my ass on their shirts. And Scott responded with a T-shirt that said xenophobia sucks. The production culminated in a catastrophic test screening that resulted in removing a scene of Holden in the hospital, the addition of the VO, and the happy ending. And finally with the producers terminating both Scott and Michael Dealey, though they were both contractually obligated to keep working on the film to turn out a product that the insurance company and the producers felt obliged to create. Look at this shot. Amazing fade here. You wouldn't see fades like that anymore. You would just see a hard cut. People have no patience anymore for that. It is a stretch to think that these conditions do not contribute to Blade Runner's jumbled scenes and chaos and the trash and the polluted environment of the film. You know, perhaps this reflected the poisonous environment of principal photography. Scott Bacatman wrote a book on Blade Runner for the British Film Institute. And in it, he said that Scott's layering in the film, production layering, produces an inexhaustible complexity and infinity of surfaces to be encountered and explored. And he says, Blade Runner refuses to explain itself. The Voigt Kampf machine, for example. Or the bonsai tree beside Ford here. This brilliance of narrative is destroyed by the voiceover. So instead of exploring the environment, you're paying attention to what Deckard is telling you. With this layered environment, everything from Joe Turkle's glasses here, even the ruffles on his tuxedo, the flashing behind him, and particularly on the streets, the trash everywhere, little objects in the corner, the coat draped over Ford's chair, This is what I refer to as like a a Terry Gilliam type of set. If you look at most of Terry Gilliam's movies, they look like this. They're they're just junk everywhere. Brazil is a good example. Even Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. So here, not only does Los Angeles look like one huge garbage dump, but there's a literal lack of nature in the film. 
bonsai tree stands out because there's almost no vegetation anywhere. Even the two animals in the film, the owl and the snake, are fake. Rachel's awkward walk when she introduces herself. This sort of echoes this false premise to everything in the film. It suggests that everything, the replicants as well as some of the humans, are products, are consumer items, and eventually, they are garbage. For instance, we will see in a minute Pris and her introduction to Sebastian. She's in garbage, and later we see Deckard surrounded by it in Sebastian's apartment. Here's Leon's apartment that he shares with Zora, supposedly. It's filled with crap, too. A lot more crap than in my study. So going back very quickly to the Tyrell Corporation, this in effect, this huge ziggurat, it's an ancient Sumerian temple, basically. And this is Blade Runner's way of letting us know that business is now com- completely replaced religion. There is no religion in this film. Other than what replicants and humans believe is the mode of their creation. Tyrell is God in this film. In his dining room, by example, is the only clean place in the film. Even Deckard's apartment looks like Terry Gilliam decorated it. So the noir aspect of the film, you can see it on the street here in that quick cut, and especially in Silene's apartment, it heightens with the introduction of Sean Young uh, in the previous scene in this full 1940s film fatale costume, looking like she belongs in Edward Hopper's famous Nighthawks painting from 1942, which Scott has said has influenced the design of this film. Sean Young plays Rachel, a new replicant infused with real human memory so that she does not know that she is not human. Remember the pictures here that Decker just went through. Rachel becomes upset at the subtle test results and leaves the room while Deckard ponders with Tyrell, how could she not be aware that she's not a human? This is an irony that Scott will make clear later with the infamous unicorn dream. Everyone wants to talk about the unicorn. So Rachel asks Deckard if he's ever retired a human by mistake, and though his annoyance of answering no, we can maybe think that he's lying, maybe that's why he quit blade running, is because he retired a human by mistake. Tyrell's interrupts by asking questions about the Voight-Kampf test and an empathy test to see if the person is real or a replicant. As the test commences to check the Rachel's physiology, her pupils dilation, presumably any pheromones or odors she gives off, Deckard asks a series of strange questions that sound designed to test a person's conservative or libertine nature. And we'll investigate this further a little bit later. We do see Rachel's eyes glow almost at the same time as she says the word kill, and Deckard is tipped off but not sure, but when she does not react to a question about eating boiled dog, Deckard knows that she's not human. She leaves with her Joan Crawford shoulder pads leaving the way. It's almost like it's straight out of Mildred Pierce. Nice eye above the door here into the cryo lab. And so here's the the more human than human line kind of on the tip of that drops along with the information that Tyrell is giving replicants memories to soften their empathy and make them more controllable. And we'll see soon that the effort is too little too late. 
If you didn't catch it, the, the hotel that Leon and Zora are staying at is the Hotel Yukon. That's where Deckard strikes gold with the photos. So Gaff, played by Edward James Olmos here, a great actor with a bit role that he did amazing things with. People are asking what's up with the origami. Gaff leaves them around. The best explanation is that Gaff is making a joke. He's describing Deckard's mental state as he observes it in the hotel room. The origami is a, is a man with an erection, and this is Gaff's way of saying that Deckard has a hard-on for solving the case or for finding the replicants, which is the case. Pushing this farther because Gaff knows about Rachel and is hunting down Zora, we could infer that Deckard has a hard-on for replicants because he wants to fuck them. The, the most famous or origami, of course, is the unicorn at the end of the film, which Gaff leaves for Deckard to let him know that he's on his tail. And this illusion was completely lost in theatrical release because the dream sequence of the unicorn was not in the film. So Deckard finds Leon's stash of photographs, including what some call Vermeer photograph. Deckard knows that replicants hoard photographs to try to create some human empathy. How does he know that? Does he know that because he investigates replicants for a living? Or does he know that because he's a replicant himself? So Roy, Batty, and Leon on their own search in discreet opposition to Deckard's search. So one search for life, the other search searches for death. So everywhere in Blade Runner, there's an oriental element insinuating a future integrated with the Chinese, or at least uh, the lower classes, an Asian lower class. The introduction here, veteran actor James Hong inserts the these technical importance of the Chinese that they will have in our future. This was rather forward-thinking in 1982. Most overseas technologies were imported from Asia, and most of them came from Japan, not China, at that time. So James Hong here plays Hannibal Chu, a former employee of, the, of Tyrell who designed the eyes of the company's replicant product, and he is visited and threatened by Leon and Roy Batty, played brilliantly here by Dutch actor Rutger Hauer. And if you lived in the 80s and you didn't see Rutger Hauer on film, you weren't watching movies. I think his most recent hit was Hobo with a Shotgun, which I recommend highly. So as we learned from Bryant, Batty is a superior replicant designed for off-world combat and colonization, and Leon probably is too. The implication being that things are so bad on Earth that Tyrell and the other corporations are using replicants to subdue other planets by force and endure the harsh conditions that no government would in order to colonize it. The deeper implication is that Tyrell and the other companies are making a mint doing this. And except for the cops running around what looks like a police state, there is no government visible in Blade Runner, only companies. Notice that Chin's speciality here is eyes. Again, Ridley is telling you to focus on the Maison scene. Everything in this scene is frozen. Why? Because Chu is a cryogenic engineer. Why? Because in the future we are obsessed with trying to preserve life, so much so that we recreate life in the form of replicants. The tunnel being here being the birth canal. Remember, this is from a director who just lost his brother less than a year before shooting. In the poem Batty quotes previously here is a America a Prophecy by William Blake. It was about the American Revolution, which the founding fathers pledged their lives, their fortune, their sacred honor. If you remember that line in the Declaration of Independence, 
This film is about a replicant revolution. Squashed one of the many things that it's about. It's, it's squashed, aborted, if you will, by the conservatives. After all, what do you think would happen if Batty ever found a cure? What is plan B for him? Retire in Palm Springs? In this uh, previous scene, Roy and Leon discover that Tyrell is a man so rich and powerful that he never leaves his penthouse at the top of his ziggurat, much like Howard Hughes at the Desert Inn in the 1970s. And he's on personal terms with one of his genetic engineers. And that genetic engineer is played by William Sanderson, J.S. Sebastian. So that scene reinforces the murder of Holden with the idea in the film that replicants, despite not being human, can experience human emotions. And by this point in the film, Leon has expressed rage twice, and Roy has a complicated set of emotions ranging from anger to malice. The cold scene was, a, was confusing in 1982, and today we assume that our future and the future of 1982's Blade Runner will be warmer, if not hot, environment due to global warming. In fact, the pollution seems to have an opposite effect. It blots out the sun frequently, and it, it makes it a raw image much of the time. It rains a lot of the time. Everyone in Blade Runner must be cold because they're all wearing thick jackets and raincoats. This may not mesh well with our idea today, but in the late 70s and early 80s, the great fear, if you go back to Time Magazine and Newsweek and those places, wasn't global warming, it was global cooling. And that scene reflects that attitude. So going into Dacre's apartment, more human than human, Rachel comes to convince him that she is not a replicant. And this is a strange scene. A viewer might wonder why Rachel, even if she was a replicant, would care what a cop thought of her. The only answer to this is that she is hoping that by convincing Deckard, she is convincing herself. If this was the goal, she fails, and we infer from the dialogue that Tyrell has found the key to making replicants more human than human. He gives them false memories. In Rachel's case, the memories are from Tyrell's niece, and Tyrell supposedly told Deckard this off-camera. So while this scene plays out, Take a look at the background, jam-packed with antiques, presumably family heirlooms, the square coffers, chiaroscuro ceiling. You're going to see tons of photographs in another shot. Some of them look really old. Deckard could be a hoarder, but we will, of course, connect this to the ever-coming unicorn. So this is a film of physical layers. And these are layers that Scott wants you to look at with an open eye. And this is one of the reasons why you see a giant eye at the beginning of the film. And this is why in the close-ups, the eyes take particular focus. Because Scott is telling you, look closer. So in Deckard's apartment here, although this is 2019, it could be 1949. Deckard looks like Philip Marlowe telling the girl, whatever girl, what is really going on. Rachel doesn't just look like an expensive-kept girl in the center of a film noir here. She looks like an alien with her high collars and observable silence. Very similar to some of the costumes in Dune, actually. So she shows Deckard photos to prove that she's human, but Deckard just got through Leon's huge stack of photos, and he's unimpressed. And in a master stroke from Ridley Scott, Deckard has a stack of photos of his own. 
So Rachel leaves crying, and we can think that she's human, but in fact, Tyrell's implants have worked. He's made a synthetic human being feel real. So she's crying. And Deckard, we see, feels too. He feels bad to break Rachel's bubble, but it's not his fault. She's not human. One of the worst acting moments by Ford is when he comes off the couch and tries to convince her, oh, no, no, it's all a joke. It's all a joke. I mean, I I can understand why 1982 and certainly now people look at scenes like that and just, wow, that was the best they could do. This is not a perfect film. The final cut is the most perfect cut. Check out this glass, folks. This glass is important. This square glass. This indicates that Deckard, stay with me, he's a square. He's a member of the Thought Police asking humans if they have homosexual tendencies and recording their responses. The glass only tells us his nature. He's a member of the establishment, a conservative establishment. Square. That's why his apartment is covered in squares. Yes, it looks like some sort of Mayan temple that he invaded in Raiders of the Lost Ark. So here's the striking Daryl Hannah as Pris. As I mentioned before, she's going to cover herself up in, in garbage in a fake attempt to hide inside the layers of crap that Blade Runner is drowned in. And this is a good time to talk about the cinematography, this beautiful shot here, even though that vehicle on the right was reused in the gunfight with uh, Brian James, we're supposed not to notice it. We must give credit to Jordan Cronenweth, who was the director of photography on Blade Runner. He also shot Altered States, Gardens of Stone, and U2's Rattle and Hum, and even shots that would seem stale in other films, such as this one, Pull back with a mat. Mid shot with Daryl. He had a previous close up. Or Deckard's investigation of Leon's apartment. They become very interesting because of Cronenweth's wonderful vision of light, or in most cases here, the lack of light. Covering yourself up with garbage. Aiding Cronenweth is Scott's excellent skills as an artist. He's able to convey his vision to his DP with his famous Ridley Grams, which were his own personal uh, shot-by-shot breakdowns, the framings, storyboards, and that helped the cinematographer frame the director's vision. In the case of Leon's apartment, we're stepping into a Vermeer painting or a Jacob Rees photograph of New York. And this is a traditional view of film noir that blends effortlessly into Sid Mead's set designs. Another unsung hero of Blade Runner. Look at the marquee in the background here, Million Dollar. Million Dollar movie theater. And the marquee is in Spanish, so most people wouldn't be able to read what movie was playing. I haven't had it translated. It's probably a joke. It's, It's quite funny that the Million Dollar Theater is basically on a street that looks like a garbage dump because that's how America is. Everyone stays at the Million Dollar Hotel because it's the cheapest hotel in the lot. If you want to dress 
a turd up, you nickel plate it. Brilliant photography here. I have no idea what Sanderson is wearing on his head. Looks like something you plunge a toilet with. So here is the Bradbury building in an advanced state of decay. It's Antonioni Gaudi outside. You know, it's warped and it's graffitied and Sebastian falls into Pris or Roy Batty's trap, actually, and he invites Pris into his apartment, which is even worse. Like, why would you invite a girl into this building or into this apartment? That boggles the mind. The darkly lit exterior is followed by a darkly lit interior that only shows the mountains of junk that's in the lobby. Mannequins. What are mannequins? Fake humans. So Pris sees the Zeppelin overhead advertised for off-world colonies in the previous shot, and she shows a face near Scorn as if she knows a truth about the off-worlds that many are not privy to, because she's been there. And I believe Bryant referred to her as a pleasure model. Like Roy Batty says to Sebastian later, we're not computers, we're physical. You would think that Sebastian's apartment would give us relief from the chiaroscuro lighting, but instead we're treated to dark rooms with more garbage and strange people that seem to worship Sebastian as if this apartment were an island and he was Dr. Moreau. Which is not too far from the truth. He is a genetic engineer and he's creating these things to keep him company, to serve him, etc., etc., If you look at the costumes here, Daryl Hannah's rather forward as Pris could be futuristic. And then you look at Sebastian's and his are older than dirt. He looks like some sort of Renaissance jacket that he's wearing. Look at his apartment. It looks like a 17th century palace in France or Italy that's been completely abused and demolished, etc. We do find it amazing that in this very overcrowded vision of Los Angeles that he seems to have two or three thousand square feet to himself. Even Deckard's apartment is rather large for what you would think. Look at all the squares, look at all the rectangles, look at all the right angles, the back of the chair, the tiles in the kitchen. So we cut here while he's drunk by the piano. He's having visions of this infamous unicorn. So you should be about wait for it 42 minutes into the film, Deckard opens his eyes. He's daydreaming or night dreaming. And the famous unicorn shot, which is not from his next, from Ridley Scott's next film legend. He shot it independently of that. And here, everyone who thought they knew what the hell was going on in Blade Runner just got up and left. Of course, the unicorn was not introduced until the director's cut in 1992. So to celebrate the controversy, Warner Brothers selected the unicorn origami from the end of the film to take the cover of the 30th anniversary edition on Blade Runner on Blu-ray. So Harrison Ford was not on the cover of Blade Runner for the 30th anniversary edition. 
the unicorn was. Look at this apartment. Look at this lighting. Vermeer. Square glass. An apartment full of junk. The insinuation of 3D photography in this scene here confused audiences at the time, but now it seems completely normal. A realistic future objective, even. This and the video phone um, in the bar soon, another expected reality. They contrast well with the impossible flying cars and replicant humans. It's techie. And in science fiction, people like techie. They like things that look forward, look impossible, look cool, look like Mission Impossible. This impossible technology paired with the chaos of constant information media surrounding Deckard and urban environment makes Blade Runner possibly the first cyberpunk film. The replicants belong in this new world, but despite using this technology to solve his case, Deckard is not a cyberpunk himself. In his noir-like trench coat, and specifically his button shirt and his tie and his, his short haircut, like a, like a military haircut, Deckard is the establishment and he's sent to kill the revolution. The only circle in the film is in the replicant's apartment. The womb. The fan, too. Creation. Which Deckard is sitting in front of in the beginning of the film in Ridleyville. So this shouldn't be surprising with Tyrell's rich and conservative dress and his bedroom, his expensive candelabras and his silk clothes and Bryant's office is as old as Bogart's and the Maltese Falcon. The replicants reject all of this with their spandex hugging their perfect bodies, and they've got gleaming plastic coats, and they are the future. And this begs the question, what is the future in Blade Runner? What does Deckard see here, by the way? Deckard sees Zora, and he sees a tattoo on the side of her face. So by now we know the replicant's future because Tyrell saw replicants develop real emotions over time and seemingly could become lost in the sea of humanity. This is really good if you're trying to create something perfect, but all androids were given a three-year, or was it three-year, four-year lifespan. So no replicant has a future because they, they look too much like us, more human than human, we like them, but we want to keep them at arm's length. So the pattern of the film is established. Okay. Leon tries to infiltrate the Tyrell Corporation, but is caught by a Voight comp test. When he fails, Roy tracks down a former Tyrell employee to learn the name of a genetic engineer with access to Tyrell. Roy sends Pris to gain the engineer's trust so she and the group can use him, Sebastian, to get to Tyrell. The purpose of getting to Tyrell is to reverse the future. The replicants want their creator to give them more life. Deckard hasn't really figured all this out, but he does find a reptile scales in Leon's apartment. As animals are mostly extinct in this future, he knows it's artificial and he finds a part number on the scale that leads him to the manufacturer. The creator of the snake reveals that the purchaser is Zora, 
one of the replicants Deckard is looking for working in a strip club for an underworld crime figure. 21st century crime, 20th century crime busters. So this is Raymond Chandler all the way. By the way, this shot of Harrison Ford coming up here was a reshot because the dialogue track used did not match what Ford said on camera. So during the restoration of the film, Scott asked Ben Ford, a son of Harrison Ford, to come in and mimic the dialogue in his lower face, including the famous Ford Jaws digitally recorded and then inserted so this gaffe could be corrected. I am a warts and all film fan, and I'm not appreciative at all of some directors going back and changing their previous work. But in this case, and I'll point it out to you, the plot and the environment and the spirit are all intact, and I think it adds to the experience by eliminating a very distracting continuity error. Look at this ostrich coming through here. Is this a Ridley Scott film or a Terry Gilliam film? There's a pony in an alleyway, really? So there's a bigger continuity error later that Scott spent a lot of time and money on fixing. And I'll point that out later. It's with Zora. So here's the scene when we cut to Deckard going in. And he leans over to talk to the snake dealer. That is not Harrison Ford's face. That's Ben Ford's face. And he's saying the lines that his dad said 30 years ago. It's been re-recorded, inserted digitally over Harrison Ford's face. And it looks flawless. And before you were confused, it didn't make any sense. It's been corrected so flawlessly. It's one of the treasures of the final cut. And with the exception of mentioning it now, I don't ever care to even think about it when I watch the full film again. Strippers in hockey masks, a famous shot that was cut out of most previous versions. Scott included it here. And what do you see? More junk, more people, more layering. Look at the detail on the street. Look at the detail in the club. All the waste. But there is purpose in the steps of everyone in these shots. There's purpose in what everyone is doing at, at this bar. This is a, a Chinatown market. Almost like a Terry Gilliam type of joke. It must be law that every science fiction film since 2001 must have a bar scene, and it must be religion since Star Wars that the bar must be as fucked up as possible. So make no mistake, this is a cantina of aliens... Even the cigarettes are reminiscent of Star Wars. The pinstripe suits and the veils are a nice touch, but the smoking martini glass is the kicker. It reminds me a lot of that scene in Brazil where that woman has that damn shoe on top of her head. This also reminds me a bit of Condor Man. One triple Istanbul Express. Pictures. Pictures, pictures, pictures. Look closer. Deckard's call to Rachel here got a laugh because of the cost of the video call, which is way over even what you would pay today, much less in 1982 if they really had that type of technology. 
And I kind of had this idea in the video phone affect my decision to create the glass technology that you read in my novel Threshold. There's a plug for you. So there was an extended sequence planned but never shot for Zora, played in a few moments by Joanna Cassidy, and that scene called for Zora to strip Teeds on stage with a snake that led Deckard to the club, and that's how Deckard identifies Zora so easily, because she's got the snake. And it was uh, a dance of Salome. Salome is a New Testament personality whom in Christian tradition, if you grew up in a tight, conservative after-school catechism program like me, you know, she's depicted as an icon of dangerous female seductiveness, specifically using dance to distract men for her evil purpose. And apparently the skill allowed her mother, Herodias, to take the head of St. John the Baptist. So the scene was, was too expensive the production was already way over budget and the scene was never shot. To which I say, damn. So look at this hallway. Look at the freak show. More plastic. A clown. A wedding party. Deckard's newspaper. Are you serious? 2019, we're reading newspapers. And there goes Zora with a snake around her covered in glitter. This has to be Joanna Cassidy's best movie. She's amazing in it. Very brave, very confident, ideal actress. Probably the best cast part in the whole movie. So the layering now has gone from the cantina to the backstage to the most bizarre burlesque show in Vegas. It looks like Mardi Gras, Carnival, and Southern Decadence all in one weekend. Look at the dressing room, Deckard in his square outfit. He's got a tie on. Zora holds the head of the snake suggestively as she assesses Deckard, possibly as this effeminate man that she pegs him to be. She lets go of the snake's head when she decides that uh, it, and ultimately Deckard, is not a threat to her. Pink flamingo in the background. Shell up on the wall. Seeing all this stuff, the glass barrier. So this all the while she showers in front of him as he scours her room for evidence. So she looks like the woman in the photograph, but her tattoo is not showing. So Deckard is not sure, and he needs to be sure, lest he retire a human by mistake. The joke in this scene is that while Deckard is checking out Zora's dressing room for clues that he's also checking out her while at the same time telling her she's at risk for peeping toms and the like. If Deckard is a replicant, he's a very human one. So here Zora gets out of the shower and she has a tattoo on her cheek and Deckard recognizes it. It was covered by makeup earlier. So he matches her to the photo. She is the replicant sharing the room with Leon. So Zora may not know that he's a Blade Runner, but she knows that he's bad news, 
and she uses her body to disarm Deckard mentally before disarming him physically. This is why she's topless in the scene. Then she tries to kill him by using the very symbol of his conservative status, his ridiculous plaid tie. This plastic raincoat. So you can see through her now. You know who she is. She's a trained killer. Deckard's retirement of Zora is another feat of the cyberpunk kids of the 80s taking over the future. Obviously, the studio nor Ridley Scott was going to ask or let Joanna Cassidy run through several plate glass windows, so they hired a stunt double that looked nothing like Joanna Cassidy to put on a wig and do it. Most films hide the stunt double's face, but in this scene, it could not have been avoided, leaving one of the most glaring continuity errors of the 1980s. This greatly confused audiences at the time, and it added to the increasing uncomfortability with the film. So in an amazing performance that many fans of the film appreciate, Cassidy agreed to reshoot the sequence on a soundstage almost three decades after the theatrical release. Her tumbling face and her hair was digitally inserted over the original footage of the stunt double, eliminating the glaring and confusing shot. It is so seamless that you forget about the previous absolutely horrible wig, which I thought about every single time I've watched Blade Runner, and I've probably seen this film a hundred times. Easy. In different versions. This is probably my fifth or sixth time watching the final cut. See the shooting stars out of the Atari sign here? Because apparently people thought Atari was still going to be around. It looks like an uh, asteroid or Defender or any of those video games. So she's hiding in place now. Decker can't find her. He spots her. Hunts her down. She runs like a hunted animal. Here we go. There she is. He's going to try to blow her head off, but he can't. There's too many people in the way. He's trying to sneak up on her. Why she stayed there, I have no idea. So here Joanna Cassidy runs. Deckard's keeping up with her. Looked like Ecto-1 from Ghostbusters parked in the background. Boom. Masterful shot. Here's the stunt double. And that's Joanna Cassidy's face. Over the stunt double that was shot 30 years ago. The raincoat looks... Almost like an insect. Look, look at that amazing close-up of Cassidy. Just like she's a, a bee trying to escape the walls of a honeycomb tomb or something. And she's retired.
the fake human being fleeing past mannequins and other fake human beings. And the shot is ever more impressive due to the endless panes of glass and the glare they all produce. Ridley Scott's visionary interpretation of Fancher's script, Cronenweth's photography. Everything culminates together very far above par scene. The neon, the fake snow, everything is fake in this shot. Deckard is fake in this shot. Why does he feel bad if she's not human? And he doesn't notice Leon. So nothing in this film is real. But in Blade Runner, there is a, another layer of fakery. And again, we're, we're faced with the giant eye. Ridley Scott wants us to look closer. We can see things even better than Tyrell, who can't see anything with with those enormous spectacles he has. It's another Ridley Scott joke. What is it that we're seeing, even as Leon is beating up Deckard almost to death? Could the conclusion be that if you care to give replicants feelings, they might cease to be replicants anymore? Could they then be, with their superior genetically engineered bodies and minds, could they be, in fact more human than human. Gaff and his weird eyes. Just as you begin to think of the human connection to the retirement of the replicants, that maybe if they develop feelings, they are human. And all of these issues. The police issued this robotic voice from a crime scene urging everyone, move on, move on, move on. Deckard tries to move on, intending to soak his sorrows in some alcohol when Gaff comes to fetch him for a talk with Bryant. As if things could not get any worse, Bryant calls Deckard a goddamned one-man slaughterhouse due to the horrible state of Zorro's crime scene, then tells him that he has to hunt down Rachel and retire her too. The stencil on the side of the spinner that says Police 995, that that looks like it's out of Akira or something, doesn't it? Or any manga? Look at that car retrofitted with something on top of it. That's as Gaff and Bryant's 21st century spinner takes off. You know, we see this thinned car from the 1950s drive by that's looks like most of the older cars, but in Blade Runner retrofitted with some sort of device. We don't know what it does, but we do know the future is not perfect and the future is not clean. We're not watching Tomorrowland or even Minority Report. This is Blade Runner, where more advanced technology does not necessarily mean better technology. So replicants are the prime example of this. It's like catalytic converters. We're going to create something to take the bad stuff out of engine emissions. We're going to pass it through something that's going to turn it into other bad stuff. But it's not the bad stuff that we put into the catalytic converter to begin with, so we're all good, right? Longer than you. And many people ask about the coincidence of Rachel appearing on the street just now, but Decker did call her at the bar and told her where he was. Obviously, she had second thoughts and came to find him, finding a retired replicant instead. Decker could not be too far away. 
Neither is Leon, who, having seen Zora dead in the street, is emotional and has a go at Deckard. The slapping scene is pretty amazing. Brian James is awesome here. If you get a chance, instead of the fight scene here, pay attention to the background after the headshot here, which I think was the first headshot I'd seen on film. Scared me quite a bit back then. I was so young. But if you look at the, the layering ideas behind uh, Blade Runner, the Terry Gilliam-like sets, the neon, Ridleyville, the apartments. Then, after this, watch 2012's remake of Total Recall. It's a superior film, much more superior to the original Paul Verhoeven film. It was directed by Lynn Weissman. He paid much more attention to Blade Runner as a Philip K. Dick movie than Total Recall itself did. So Wiseman worked on Stargate and Godzilla before directing the Underworld franchise and Live Free or Die Hard. The Total Recall remake didn't make waves, but if you watch it again, you'll wonder why. It's a reverse Blade Runner with robots. Give it another chance. I love that film. It's very reminiscent of Blade Runner. Not a whole lot Total Recall, which I wasn't really a fan of to begin with. So back in Deckard's apartment, there's a series of visuals to make sense of. It goes without saying that Deckard is not going to kill Rachel after she saves his life. But this is the turning point in the film. Things go all downhill from here, as evidenced by the spinner's light falling through the window. So when Deckard talks about getting the shakes after retiring a replicant, we're empathizing with him, or at least trying to. This comment gets to what Philip K. Dick was explaining in his novel Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which Blade Runner is based on. Paul Salmon wrote a brilliant book on Blade Runner called uh, The Making of Blade Runner. Future Noir. Had to look at my bookshelf there. And Salmon said, quote, Once an android evolves to the point that it is indistinguishable from a human being, what's the point in making the distinction? Unquote. Here's Rachel with her glowing eyes, her Mildred Pierce outfit. We see... Less and less of the distinction here when Rachel says she's not in the business, she is the business, and she starts crying. If a replicant can cry, is it still a replicant? Deckard empathizes, he bleeds into his sink, so if he is a replicant, there's no distinction in him either, biologically anyway, to top it off how similarly humans, human these two non-humans are. Rachel's eyes glow in entering the kitchen, and Deckard's eyes glow when he leaves the kitchen, so there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of difference between Rachel and Deckard. They both get emotional. They're both upset. And they're both fake. Look at this brilliant shot where both their eyes glow. Now, Ridley didn't plan this. He planned for her eyes to glow, 
but if you're going to set up a shot this way, any actor that's in the same line of shot sight as the excuse me as the lens of the camera, their eyes are going to glow too. So he enhanced it a, a little bit to make it work for the final cut. But it wasn't initially intended that Ford's eyes glow in that shot. Creepy shot. Creepy eyes. More of Deckard's hoarding. A disorder, I guess. Topped off by Rachel asking him if he's ever taken the Voight-Comp test himself. Sean Young looks like a, a mannequin in a, a shop window here. A shop girl, which you would find in a film noir in the 40s. Deckard's old photos lying around. Why are they here? See the lens here? Look through the lens. You see Rachel. Why are you looking through a lens at Rachel? Scott's telling you. Look closer. Another circle. Deckard's old photos here. Why? Are they family or are they just proof that he's a replicant? The song that she plays here is I Can't Take My Eyes Off of You, which is funny, another eye reference. And I've always thought that Sean Young's profile, especially her nose, looks reminiscent of Sigourney Weaver here. This is a complicated performance for Young, not nearly as subtle as Alien, which was criticized for having flat characters. And Scott purposefully changed tactics in directing Blade Runner to avoid that accusation being, being level, leveled at that film as well. The result being that the androids seem either stiff like Rachel or over the top like Leon or Royal, Roy. But here, Rachel, the android, lets her hair down, no pun intended, and this allows Decker to get close to Rachel. But we can tell by her reaction that she's not sure what she's doing and it could be that she's not sure because she's never gone through this before she has memories but she's never experienced what she's experiencing now be it love be it the act of making out physical contact with the opposite sex or what have you interesting three quarter shot it would not have worked at profile it would not have worked at straight on three quarter shot works interesting take of Ford spilling his drink here as he gets up. But was that an outtake? Was that a gaffe? Was that, you know, why did they use that shot? Very strange. The double profile here, looking at the same thing, the same way. Parallel sight lines. Parallel eye lines. Parallel profiles, 180 degree shot. So first it was Rachel, then Deckard, now it's Deckard, then Rachel. Left to right, right to left. They're looking in the same direction because they're going in the same direction. So again, 
the scene is the turning point of the film. It's an interesting animal-like go for the kiss from Deckard here, who is supposedly a human. And this animal-like performance continues against the, the blinds that you'll see soon. Look him to sort of dart towards her. Like he has four legs instead of two. She attempts to flee. He stops her rather forcefully. And this is a huge criticism of Blade Runner. When they go up against the blinds, this has been interpreted as coercion, if, if not rape. I mean, look, she's upset. She doesn't want to be physically intimidated by him. He is basically forcing himself on her. So some think that Deckard's pursuit of Rachel is depraved since she is not human. Might it be bestiality? If Deckard is a replicant, then does it even matter? If not, we're reminded that Pris and Zora are pleasure models specifically made for a private enterprise and legal sex trade, so this shouldn't surprise us. In essence here, Deckard, replicant or not, is teaching Rachel to be human. This is all done in close-up. This had to be terribly difficult to shoot. Ford and Young did not particularly get on well during shooting. Pan Am, what a joke. Amazing shot, deep models. Look closer, things are not as they seem. More eyes. And though it's not obviously verisimilitude, you can tell that Blade Runner has many layers. The clocks represent time running out for the replicants. Strangely enough, their scenes seem to slow down in pace versus the humans that go very fast. Batty in particular speaks very slow. So the humans are the chatterboxes, especially the cops. They can't shut up. Sebastian in his chair. This looks lifted out of some Terry Gilliam movie. Look at the sniffing. The animal eyes. More eyes. Glowing eyes from Pris. Her choker is a sign of bondage. Sebastian wakes up. Wow. Nice shot. Those glowing eyes. Sebastian, we learn, has a degenerative disease called Methuselah syndrome that ages him prematurely. There is no such disease so-called Methuselah. It's something that's made up for the script. This is something that the replicants can empathize with, and he can empathize with their built-in short lifespan. So his life is cut short, just like their lives. Their interests are the same. He wants to live longer, they want to live longer. Look at that. 
Rooker Hauer and Daryl Hannah here have an amazing animal-like exchange that's very similar to what you just saw with Ford and Sean Young. And we see that Roy is wet here. His skin is wet. You know, is it the rain, the moisture of the rain, or is it really perspiration? Glowing eyes. Here's the animal attack. Makes Sebastian uncomfortable. He leaves. Why is he uncomfortable? Because he's human. So I'm sure that they would have failed just any Voight comp test right there. Batty's developing emotions seem jerky, but remember that he's learning to cry and he's learning to feel remorse. And his smile echoes this unfamiliarity with his emotions. See? Why is he cracking a smile? It's just us now. Eggs, a symbol of life being destroyed for consumption. Get it? They are just as replicated as Batty and Pris. A pool table surrounded by replicated life. Life is a game. The players are real and fake. Human and replicant. A fake doll plays with a fake doll. That's cut in half. The chess game is Batty's way in to see Tyrell. Tyrell is Sebastian's competitor in the game. Look at Hanna's eyes when Batty responds to yes at being perfect. It's pretty amazing. Nexus is Latin, meaning the act of binding together. Replicants' animal instincts are confirmed when Batty tells Sebastian, we're no computers, we're physical. But Pris proves human intelligence with repeating the Socratic thought. I think, therefore I am. I am, therefore I am human. The non-human android is exposed by retrieving the boiling eggs so something artificial can in time save something real Batty pleads with Sebastian and Sebastian arranges a meet obviously under some duress though Batty uses humor another complex human emotion Here's the egg. He can't hold it because it's hot. He's too late. The real egg is destroyed. Life is destroyed. It's like an abortion being aborted. 
Some of these sets are so much like Dune that they might as well be from Dune. Sebastian's apartment, okay. If it were cleaner, it could be on the planet Caladan. And Tyrell's apartment looks like it could be right out of Arrakis. Or the Emperor's Palace. Very strange similarities going on. Remember, Dune is only two years later. This is a good one. Batty putting Sebastian between Pris's legs. Man between a woman's legs. It's sort of a reverse suggestion of intercourse. The eggs, the importance of life, and the punchline with meaning. Eyes. Eyes, eyes, eyes. So, Sebastian agrees to take them to see Tyrell. And it's what they want. And in this shot, you know Sebastian is disposable. Here's the ziggurat, the pyramid, where you worship money. And Tyrell, the 21st century Howard Hughes, living in what appears to be like an undisturbed tomb of an Egyptian pharaoh. His bed is actually based on a photograph of Pope John Paul II's bed, which Scott and the production designer found. The owl and the eyes. Paul Salmon quoted producer Michael Delia saying that, quote, the central problems in Blade Runner are essentially morally ones, excuse me, moral ones. Should the replicants kill to gain more life? Should Harrison Ford be killing them simply because they want to exist? Unquote. Don't humans do the same thing? And this is examined in this room. Tyrell's murder is ultra-violent and purposeless. Is this not how humans behave to each other? Are we not ultra-violent? Do we not kill each other purposelessly? So we have more indistinguishable morals. Are the replicants so bad? Are they not doing what we have taught them to do? Are they not being more human than human? Food for thought. In the TV version of Blade Runner, Batty says, I want more life, father. The word father is replacing the word fucker. An interesting solution to the censors, considering we are talking here about creation. The chess game reenacted here is called the Immortal Game of 1851, in which Adolf 
Andelson gave up both rooks, a bishop and a queen, in order to checkmate his opponent, Lionel Kizaretsky, at the first international chess tournament in London. Yes, I had to actually look that up. Scott has called this a coincidence, though Zora and Leon are blunt instruments such as rooks. Pris is definitely a queen, and Batty, the spiritual leader of the replicants, a bishop. They win the game against Terrell, but they do not win more life. Checkmate. Tyrell is strangely wrapped up here, almost like a mummy. His bed, as I said before, is a, is a replicant of Pope John Paul II's bed. God's bed. He's playing God anyway. The dialogue here is about finding a solution to the technical problem of life. It is on par with the discovery of Tannis dialogue in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Great stuff. Sebastian's costume here fits the theme of his creations in his apartment. He doesn't belong in this century. Father. After Turrell's murder, if you take a look, the original script had Batty discover another room with Tyrell on life support, indicating the man he killed was a replicant. This was dropped due to cost with the insinuation that Deckard is a replicant, it would have been too much anyway, and not everybody can be a replicant, etc., etc., and it pushes the theme way too far. It was good that it was cut, but it was an interesting theory. The storyboard's a pretty interesting to look at. little bit of glowing eyes here. A more graphic shot of Batty crushing Tyrell's head was shot using a sophisticated model, but in the end it proved too much, even to Scott. It's not in the final cut. You can tell that Batty is upset when Tyrell says searching for a longer life is academic. It's not academic to Batty, it's reality. See, now he's really sweating. When Tyrell tells Batty he has a light burned brighter than most humans, the light on him is subdued. Watch it. Tyrell's lit up. Batty is dark. He's flickering on even on one side. Batty tells Tyrell that his sins, like a good Catholic going to a confessor, are unforgivable. Instead of rejecting them, Tyrell encourages Batty to revel in them, and he does by murdering Tyrell. The created destroys the creator. A little bit of reflection here, glowing eyes later. Batty has seen enough, and he wants Tyrell to stop seeing but Scott wants you to see more the glasses fall off Batty's mission now blurred what is his purpose with no solution to the lifespan problem he is blind just as blind as Tyrell just as dead as Tyrell we do not see Sebastian's murder but the owl does He's not frightened, possibly because he is not a replicant. 
the candles here, probably an indication that even the rich are short of power. Glowing eyes. The stars in the elevator were achieved by a motion-controlled pullback of the camera while the camera zoomed in. This is called a stretch. Haver said the he recognized this in the first reading with Scott as Orpheus descended into to hell. Did I say Haver? I meant Hower. I meant Hower. Nothing visualizes the future more than a tunnel. Andre Tarkovsky did a brilliant film in the 70s called Solaris. It's a Soviet sci-fi epic, and it's loaded with tunnels. But it's all also a very clean film, unlike Blade Runner in almost every way. Scavengers here in the future aren't after food, they're after technology. Brant tells Deckard here in the spinner of Tyrell's murder, Sebastian has been identified, so Bryant dispatches Deckard to check out Sebastian's apartment. We are robbed of Deckard visiting the murder scene, but Scott rarely visits a set twice in this film. Deckard and Sebastian's apartment are the only ones. And anyway, the story moves way too fast. Look at this shot of the spinner. No wires, no lifts. Great special effects shot. Looks like he's flying through Fritz Lang's Metropolis or William Menzies' movie. Things to come. Here's Pris on the monitor. That didn't cost $1.25, I hope. Deckard knows that something is up. Knows that Pris is, more than likely, one of the two last replicants he's looking for. And the scavengers took something off the spinner, one of the retrofitted pieces of equipment. The Bradbury apartment is another reason why this film noir is not set in L.A. and, Or rather, it is set in L.A. and not New York. Everyone in California would have laughed at the screen if the title said Los Angeles and the finale took place in the Bradbury building because the building is so famous in Los Angeles. The background mat here looks a lot like Tron, shot two years later. The gullwing doors the spinner indicate popular forms of sci-fi. Back to the Future, Tom Petty's video, You Got Lucky, etc., etc. Movie theater, Pris's eyes, can you tell what is human and what is not? Is on the screen fake? Is on the screen real? This film is full of tests. It's all about tests. And Deckard is about to fail the most important test. Ridley Scott told The Hollywood Reporter in in 2015 during publicity for The Martian that Star Wars had an enormous impact on him as a filmmaker. This explains his predilection for sci-fis. Sci-fis are much more powerful than anything else he shot. And and that doesn't mean to um, demean his films that are not sci-fis. Thelma and Louise is spectacular. The Gladiator, with the exception of that idiotic finale, plays very well. But his science fiction novels really make a punch. Even Prometheus, which plot-wise is a nightmare, way worse than Blade Runner. It's a very significant film. It's a powerful visual film. 
Of course, using Ford in a sci-fi, not everyone was surprised. Harrison Ford, of course, was huge from Star Wars. Return of the Jedi was to come out the following year. In the same interview with The Hollywood Reporter, Ridley Scott said that some people at Warner Brothers didn't know what a film noir was, and when they saw Blade Runner, they didn't understand it. It's as if they never saw Alien and only remembered Star Wars. This seems absurd, but if you remember that the studio systems, even by 1980, 1981, they were still suffering uh, from the breakdown of the, the distribution and theater problem from the late 1950s and 60s, putting all of their banking money on independent filmmakers like Francis Ford Coppola, like George Lucas, even Jack Nicholson. Deckard's ascent into the Bradbury Building's top floor could very well be to Orpheus. Orpheus was a legendary musician and a poet in, in ancient Greek myth, and he attempted to retrieve his dead wife from the underworld and failed. And upon his return, he failed to honor his previous patron, the god Dionysus. Instead, he worshipped Apollo and was ripped to shreds by Dionysus' female followers. And some people say, you know, not a bad way to go. Look at this shot, Deckard going through the apartment. That amazing shot. It's like Terry Gilliam barfed on the set. If Howard is right, and it was Howard's idea of Batty ascending to Orpheus, then Batty is... Now Orpheus, who descended into a Hades of blood in an attempt to save not only the other replicants, but Pris, whom is the only replicant that he kisses as his wife. Where Batty is now is unknowable and very much a good question. Another plot hole. Why does he send Pris to take care of Deckard by herself. So, Batty fails to honor the god who made him, Tyrell, and now must be retired by the Blade Runner, meant to avenge the murder of the gods. That's what humans are in this film. They're gods. They create life and they take it away. A replicant can only take life. They can't give life. They can't even extend their own. And this supposedly is a reaction of the nerves and so forth of a replicant being retired. Because of the blue fingernails, an indicator of a replicant is close to death, we assume that she is close to death. We saw the blue fingernails when she grabbed the egg out of the boiler in Sebastian's apartment. Batty all of a sudden shows up. Strange. Deckard beat him to the room, assuming that he was coming from Terrell's apartment. The Doors of Destiny. This is a great special effects shot here of the gun shooting down the hallway. 
Some people may think it looks rather dated now, but it's a pretty good shot. Batty coming in, light going across the room. Batty understanding that it's a trap. Can he escape? Ford bears himself. He knows that Batty is the most dangerous of all of them. Never really understood why he pushes the tongue back in with his own tongue. Kind of strange. Unsettling. And here, boom. And now he's got to get out of there. Deckard is foolish here going in without backup, but then we wouldn't have a finale. When Batty breaks Deckard's fingers, he's making him less than a man. This was pretty, pretty scary back then. If you thought you went to go see Star Wars and you see Rutger Hauer pull Harrison Ford's hand through a wall and breaking two of his fingers. And then as if it's a game, a chess game, he gives him back the gun. There are more animal connotations here in the finale. Chris looks like a raccoon, of course, from the previous scene. Batty prances around like a wolf, and he runs, sort of like he has four legs, and he howls. Deckard is moving around like hunted prey, which he is. The apartment is full of rats, and Deckard is one of them. He's desperate to find a way out of this maze alive. When I was a kid, my mother rented this movie for me because I couldn't. It was rated R, but it had Harrison Ford in it, and it was a sci-fi. How bad could it be? And the confusion I experienced was probably the same that the producers had when they saw it and when a test audience screened it on March 5th, 1982. Silence followed the screening, and one observer described a pall hanging over the theater. Where was Indiana Jones? Where was Han Solo? And there were five narrowed complaints from the cards taken from the audience that pretty much matched the producer's concern. One, the film was hard to follow. What exactly is a Blade Runner? Two, it's too graphic, too violent. Three, it's too slow. The love scene, for instance, dramatically slow. Four, too dark, too grim, too gloomy. Five, the ending was unsatisfying and the unicorn was confusing. The hell is going on? This was bad news bought for $28 million and the producers panicked. Anybody would. These issues would be addressed in kind if the film was 
hollow, then a narration could clean that up. It's too graphic, well then it's time for cuts. Just a few frames off the eyes and the fingers. Too slow, then cut some more off. Ambiguous ending, shoot a happy one and tack it on. Unbelievably, not only was Scott and the others fired, but they had to fix the film as per their contracts. So Scott shot the new ending and asked Stanley Kubrick for unused footage from The Shining that he used on the end as he and Rachel drive through the forest. And this is why it's confusing using the term the director's cut in 1992 when the ending was taken off with the narration and other scenes added. Since Ridley Scott put together the original release, he was contractually obligated to. He also put together the international version and the director's cut and the final cut that we're watching here. All of these were approved by Ridley Scott. This cut, the final cut, is closest to his vision, and that's why we're watching it. So Deckard's lost his gun. He's in deep shit now. Blue fingers. Not yet. I'm going to die soon. I'm trying to stop it. How does he stop it? Puts a nail through his hand. Enter your comparison to Christ here. A nail through the hand. It's a fallacy that no one likes the narration. My college professor, Dr. Barbara Hales, prefers the narration. It made it more like Marlowe, and we can see why. The ride into the sunset as the happy ending is called, didn't seem to lighten the picture up, and long-term, it didn't seem right for the film. It seems to be very deus ex machina type of ending. It's almost like Stagecoach, where they they ride in the town, uh, and they're going to throw the, the hooker in jail, and John Wayne gets to be alone the rest of his life. But all of a sudden, the sheriff and his, his deputy, they put them on the the carriage and, and they're off. What happened? Nobody really understands what's going on. Nobody understands what's happening. And that's how Blade Runner originally ended. They're hunted. They're on their own. They're on the run. And then the next scene, there's more light than in the rest of the film. They're driving through a forest and everything's fine. That seemed more confusing then the ending that followed in the director's cut and then the final cut. In 1982, Roger Ebert called Blade Runner a stunningly interesting visual achievement, but a failure as a story. In 1992, he still held the opinion of the director's cut, but was surprised of the durability of the film. Ebert emphasized this view upon the 2007 final cut release, describing this film as the best yet moving from two to four stars. That's a huge improvement in the Ebert universe. Fans have criticized Ebert's opinion of Blade Runner, but if it was a perfect film in 1982, then why has Scott released four different versions of it? You can check out all of these reviews at rogerebert.com. It's a very interesting website, very informative, but I would stick to Ebert's views alone. 
The film opened on June 25th, 1982, the same day as Star Wars in 1977 and Alien in 1979. Alan Ladd Jr., the producer of all three of these films, said that this was his lucky day. Lucky's a strange way to put it. Reviews called it a fascinating failure, all sensation and no heart, muddled, the voiceover was described as ludicrous, and the ending even more confusing than the original. This and the summer glutted with sci-fi films, cashing in on Star Wars, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Conan the Barbarian, The Thing, all of these hit within 45 days of Blade Runner. So Blade Runner grossed $6 million its first weekend and dropped fast. For a movie that spent $28 million, this is not what we call a financial success. The changes seem to have worked the initial weekend. The film is, after all, still watched widely today, and the final cut has just been released on Blu-ray. People keep going back to the film, not because the original was a success, but because over time it has been made more and more watchable, more and more agreeable by its fans. It's a very strange way to do a film. Listen to the fans complain over 30 years. Orpheus here has reached the roof. And I'm not going to go through all the technical boring differences and all the different cuts of Blade Runner because in my opinion there's only two versions of the film one in which Deckard is a human and another which it is strongly suggested but in the end it is still ambiguous that Deckard is a replicant everything else is interesting such as the 70 millimeter work print found in the vaults of the Todd AO facility but ultimately all of that is irrelevant the roof here by the way is, is seeing more evidence of the retrofitting I love the ending the narration nails it Deckard says Batty saved his life because as someone who was losing theirs he knew the value of it this is true but the narration spoils it we see the joy in Batty's eyes as Deckard loses his grip he's won Deckard is lost and that's what matters to Batty in the end he's proven himself a human to Deckard in the reverse shot of Deckard we see that this is true and I don't need narration to get this point famous scene of Ford hanging off the roof losing his grip Batty watching another person die is he going to watch another person die does it matter that much he's seen so many people die that's what it is to be a slave a slave and with Tyrell as the pharaoh Deckard gripping the steel in hopes that something made by a man can save him. And after this, Batty really shows off the dove. War and peace. I love the TDK sign in the background. At the time, TDK had a catchphrase with their recording equipment, their motto was so real, TDK, so real. And Batty is sitting in front of the sign. Ford is excellent here, struggling to keep from falling to being thrown and his reaction while he's on the ground. Batty's jump is his last effort as a superhuman, an amazing stunt. 
Amazing shot of Hauer. There are matte paintings there and they've gone out of style, but they're still effective. Batty's eyes are amazing here, and his eyebrows. Saves him with his crucified hand and organ music from a church starts playing in the background. Hauer is still an amazing actor, but his performance in this scene deserves undying respect. As a life, Batty is wasted. All of his memories, all of his experiences are gone. No one to see them, no one to know about them, no one to care about them. Perfect writing, perfect directing, perfect acting, perfect reacting. In time, tears in the rain. Yes, the dove is corny, but hey, it works. Batty's death is the only one in this film that makes anything in the film make sense. It's the only thing that means anything. Because it's the only one that changes anything. It changes Deckard for good. And that's why Blade Runner is an exceptional film. Deckard is the bad guy in this film. And at the end of the movie, he turns into the good guy trying to preserve life. He changes. Ford is masterful here. What an amazing film. We have the spinner and the light always rising in Blade Runner. No one ever goes down except to the police station. Everyone goes up. Here, Gaff says it's a shame that Rachel won't live. This was reversed by the voiceover that informed us quite out of the blue that Rachel has, a, as a new replicant, has no predetermined lifespan. That's the Doisex Machina ending. Insert your views on John Knox and predestination here. I'm not going to go into it. Wish they saved one of those spinners. It would look awesome in a museum like the Smithsonian. So even though Deckard says he's done, Gaff tosses him a gun. The in intention is that Deckard still has to kill Rachel as part of his job. When Deckard returns to his apartment, he intends to find Rachel already dead, Gaff having left the roof first. But Rachel is still alive, leading us to believe that somehow Deckard beat Gaff back to the most obvious place in the world to look for Tyrell's runaway replicant. The 180 degree shot here from behind Ford to the front of Ford with the gun symbolizes Deckard's changing attitude for the revolution against the revolution, etc. If Gaff is in the apartment and Deckard shoots him, it would make Gaff an idiot for giving Deckard his gun back. So really Deckard doesn't have anything to fear. Gaff is the only one in Blade Runner who really knows what's going on and the unicorn proves it. And so Deckard doesn't kill Rachel just like we knew he wouldn't. And as they exit, Deckard sees the unicorn origami. So he knows Gaff was there. He knew Rachel was there. And he knew Deckard wasn't going to kill her. He also knows that the biggest secret of all, which is that Deckard himself is a replicant. Just as Deckard was informed about Rachel's implanted childhood memories, so Gaff was informed about Deckard's dreams. We just didn't see it. Unicorns are not real. People don't really dream about them. 
check Freud. They don't exist. Therefore, if unicorns are not real, Deckard is not real. Look at the shaking hand here with the gun pulling the sheet off. Wow. It makes sense in a film noir, hard-boiled detective sort of plot that the detective has to think like the killer in order to catch the killer. Perhaps Deckard was built for this purpose, designed by the Terrell Corporation to catch other replicants. It's an interesting notion, but we'll never know. Rachel coming up from the sheets is kind of like coming back from the dead. It's a new life for her, for sure. And the famous end scene is coming up as it was meant. The final cut came with a unicorn on the box, just like I said. And Deckard now suspects what Gaff knows. He is more human than human. Deckard is on the run. He's joined the revolution. Blade Runner is two sides of Ridley Scott. One is Stanley Kubrick and the other is George Lucas. It marries 2001 to Star Wars in a genre, not science fiction or space opera, but rather neo-noir, what William Fisher once called the terminal genre. The unicorn. It's too bad she won't live. But then again, who does? This is a, a multinational vision, a commercial future of society trying to change. The result is Blade Runner, The Roared Warrior, Streets of Fire, Buckaroo Banzai, Highlander, and, you know, certain Grace Jones videos. William, William Fisher pointed those out. The Fisher describes this genre as a wasteland retrofitted to move forward, a world of communication and transportation that brings destructive machines to aid our contradictory search to progress along this evolutionary ladder. 2001, etc. It's rather deep. So enter the living machines. Replicants and their creators fall victim to a new hierarchy of consumerism in which the living product may be above a toaster, but below a human. The rebellion leads to retrofitting even the replicants, in this case a predetermined lifespan, to make the living machine more like its ancestor, the blender. So where is all this going? Well, there's an argument over what is human and is what is just about capitalist exploitation. Blade Runner is about free enterprise, it's about expansionism, it's about domination... And there's a similar criticism of that in Alien. And again, this film is not about 2019. This is about 1982 and Al Hampton Fancher and Ridley Scott. And to a large extent, Philip K. Dick saw the world around them. Unfortunately, allegorical predictions are just as unreliable as premonitions of the next decade's fashion sense. I like Blade Runner. It's a cool movie. It has many layers to look at. It's not about one thing. It's interesting to study. It's highly entertaining. And it's forever argued about. This is not an exhaustive review. This is not everything. It's an imperfect film. But it's an outstanding vision. In the modern era of cloning, we're amazed at the timelessness of this film and the relevancy of it all still. 
But in the end, if you don't want your evolved toaster to kill you, then don't buy one. Thanks for hanging out with me for the last couple of hours. I hope you found this interesting, whether you watched Blade Runner with the commentary on or just listened in your car. The Super 70 Podcast is brought to you by Dylan Davis. That's me. You can find me, my podcast, and my books at www.thatdylandavis.com. If you're offended by my interpretation of this film, you can email me at thatdylandavis at gmail.com. If you like the podcast, please leave a rating and a comment on iTunes. You can also find me on Twitter at thatdylandavis and find my books on amazon.com. All music on this podcast was written and recorded by my friend Rosalind McPhail. You can explore her music at rosalindmcphail.com. That's R-O-Z-A-L-I-N-D-M-A-C-P-H-A-I-L.com. Check out her projects and her SoundCloud. This is Dylan Davis, and we'll meet next time at INC Inc. International, the company that cares about people.